And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Hi there. I'm so excited you're here. I'm even more excited that I'm here. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to teach. So we're continuing in our series, uh, Certainty in a World of Doubt, through the Gospel of Luke. And our thought today is why Jesus died, and I'm going to get right to it. Uh, have you guys ever gotten tired of hearing the gospel? Think about it. It gets a little routine sometimes, and it gets whizzes by us a little bit. I never get tired of hearing the gospel, and I need to pay attention really close attention. So open your Bibles and your hearts to Luke 22. And uh, let me begin by saying our our beginning two verses said that this feast was drawing near and the chief priests and the scribes were planning to kill Jesus. And their plan worked. Well, it sort of worked. Because it was not a surprise to Jesus or God. It was actually their plan A. And not only in addition to having all sin placed upon him, At age 33, he died in agony. He died a pitiful death with shame. And he had died alone, abandoned by everybody in his life, even his father, God himself. And it's shocking. And it's even more shocking to know what Isaiah 53.10 says. It says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to save, not to condemn. And he came to suffer our sins and to suffer under the full wrath of God. And the, the symbol of Christianity, what we call here at Desert Breeze as life to the fullest, it's the cross. Historically, a symbol of death, an instrument of death, and not only any death, but the death of our Savior, and not only our Savior, our King hangs on that cross. And it could not have been, who would ever say, that's the life for me, that's the one who I want to follow, that's my faith, if they really don't understand the gospel. It could not have been man's idea, it had to be God's idea. It had to be the one whose thoughts and ways are far above ours. Only he could make this hideous picture, this hideous thing that happened, and it happened to be the hope of the world. But why did it take this? Why did Jesus, of all people, die? We need to ask God to help us with that and to show us that. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, there's a telling tooth that we must all recognize and believe if we were to ever understand the cross and the good news that it brings us. And that is that we are fallen people. We live in a fallen world. We're in relationship with other fallen people, but with a faithful, faithful God. We do live in a world of doubt and of fear. We live in a world of vain forgetfulness and self-centeredness. And when we forget the gospel, we shrink your grand kingdom in which you've invited us to be co-heirs with Christ. We shrink that to our own little kingdoms of self, competing with one another for lordship. God, we desperately need to be made new. And without a newness that can only come through the cross, we will never 
be satisfied. So God, I pray through your word and your spirit that you radically change our hearts and our minds this day. In an everlasting way, transform what is dead in us to a living testimony to your power and love and grace and mercy for your glory and our good in the name above all names who would make it possible on the cross. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's read chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered of the twelve. And he went away, conferred with the chief priests and officers on how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought the opportunity to portray him to them in the absence of the crowd. And then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will, we have the, have us, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not eat, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leaders as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines, reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who recline, reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. For you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, ju thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is God's word to us today. So what does it tell us? Like I said, in the first two verses, we have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread drawing near, and it's called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes, they had an agenda, and they feared the people. The Passover was and is probably the most celebrated Jewish holiday. And it makes sense that the chief priests and the scribes would be there. They're religious figures. But they weren't there to celebrate, were they? No, they were there to murder, to plan murder. But even in their cowardly planning, they they had to hide behind their religious robes and self-serving authority. And it's ironic, only looking back, that they didn't fear God in the flesh. They feared those who were following him. Why was that? It's because Jesus was preaching a new hope far different from their religious order. And they were growing in number. The party was going to be over for them. And those under their uh, legalistic thumb were looking away from them and to the Christ. And when that happens, the unhealthy fear of man goes away and a healthy fear and dependence on God, it is born and it grows. And so our first point is that sacred celebrations that are empty of God's glory and authority are full of man's vanity and entitlement. Look at what happens, what's happened at, uh, at Christmas. We're supposed to be celebrating the coming of our Lord and Savior. But instead, it's more about getting than about giving. Black Friday? It's like black October and November now. Let's see how we can capitalize on man's greed. Right? So we can operate in the black and not lose money. It's more about getting than about giving. And it's even happening in our church. On one end, you've got extreme legalism that has little or nothing to do with the true full gospel. And on the other end, you've got irreverent uh, license. It's more about feeling good than being good. I read a post by a great guy from our church here this last week, and he and his wife went to a worship event, and uh, he was very troubled He was very troubled because it was more about the worship experience instead of about experiencing the pleasure of God, the pleasure and the presence of God. It's kind of sad. It's all about man's vanity. And our point number two is when what's in it for me screams continually from your heart, false gods will take the place of the true God. And when your false gods are threatened, fear will lead to the destruction of others and yourself. So what's going on here in our verses is this is grasping at celebrating and preserving false idols. What is their false idol? It's their own vain glory. Their remedy, because that was threatened, kill him. That was their answer. But paradoxically, they didn't understand that Jesus was there to give himself to that death. Jesus wasn't saying, what's in it for me? And despite their hate for him, he was going to do something eternally magnificent for all of fallen mankind, even them. What did Jesus give himself to this death for? For the glory of God and for our good. I love what, the way 
Philippians 2, 6 through 8 describes Jesus. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a human, but of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Blinded by sin and selfishness in their what's-in-it-for-me attitudes, they weren't afraid to kill the Son of Man. But in fear, they were looking for a politically wise way to protect their own public religious facade and control over the people. Jesus threatened their exposure. And he, they feared his followers who were growing in number and they were, because they were dependent on their own control of their own little kingdom. And their self-imposed deception says that Jesus is weak. He's expendable. In their blindness, they couldn't see the paradox between their plan to kill him and Jesus giving himself to that death, allowing it to happen. They were thinking they were exploiting his weakness when in fact they were giving Jesus the opportunity to display the greatest power in the universe. And that is the power to push away, to restrain the wrath of God Almighty against evil men who more than deserve it. And it's magnificent to think what Psalm 76.10 says, God makes the wrath of man to praise him. That is true power and strength. It goes on in verse 3 and so on to tell us that Satan entered into, into Judas. It's better translated that Satan possessed Judas. He was one of the 12. And he was, confer, he was conferring with the chief priests and the officers. And they were glad and agreed. He consented and sought that opportunity as long as it was in the absence of the crowd. And so we talked about fear leading to the destruction of ourselves and others. So what was going on with Judas? Judas was, he was, may have been uh, uh, conspiring out of fear because Jesus wasn't turning out to be the Messiah that he thought he was going to be. He thought he was going to come in great power and glory and that because he was hanging out with him in the 12, that he would get this, this uh, position of authority and, and popularity. But it wasn't working out that way. Because unlike the chief priests in their good old boys club, Jesus was there for God's glory to serve. But he turned away from it because at least the chief priests would give him something. And the chief priests, they had what they wanted. They had power and control, but Jesus was threatening uh, for them to lose that. And so we see twin bad fruits growing from two depraved hearts. But they were glad. Why were they glad? Jesus was glad because with just a kiss, just a betrayal, it would only take a few minutes, he was going to get a half a year's wages. And the chief priests were glad because they didn't have to do the dirty work. They could hide behind their religious facade. It was a backroom deal. It was conspiracy. And so all their evils and even their fears worked well together. Point number three is in a depraved and self-serving heart, religious and moral ignorance and arrogance are twin fruits that grow on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's been true since the beginning of time that nourishing, nourishing ourselves with forbidden fruit comes with two things, and they're both from God. 
The first is, is an alternative of a good choice. And the second is a warning about the bad choice. In the garden, God says, you see all this? I mean, all this? You can eat whatever you want. It's all yours, but not that. That one thing. Choose that, and you choose death. What this tells us that our, our choices stem from our desires, or excuse me, our beliefs, and our beliefs stem from our desires, and our desires stem from our treasures, and where are our treasures? They're in our hearts. It's a heart thing. You can't get around it. And also, just because Satan entered into Jesus, it still doesn't mean that he's not accountable. It doesn't diminish his personal responsibility. But you might say, well, even though God allowed it, wasn't it the appointed time? Yes, but that still doesn't let him off the hook. God didn't make him do anything. Remember what we said, God uses the wrath of man? The wrath of man, the evilness in man, is not of God, but God can use it for his glory. He can use it to accomplish the very thing that brings us goodness, restoration. Because what is already in Judas's corrupt heart has played out. You also might say, but he was part of the 12. Wasn't he a Christian? Wasn't he saved? Well, I don't think he was because it says that he was possessed by Satan. What? Why do, why do you say that? Well, because Satan can't possess anybody that's already Christ's possession. That's true for him, and it's true for us. But God gives us all choices and clearly spells out consequences, and none of us can say, the devil made me do it. It's not Flip Wilson, Geraldine Jones, the early. You guys, it kind of dates me a little bit. Do you, remember, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I see you raising your hands, you gray-haired people. Yeah, like me. We can't say the devil made me do it. What comes out of your heart is yours. You own it. It was already there, and that's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for everybody that walks the planet. We can't be in denial that we struggle with our hearts. Do you struggle with your heart every single day? Like Paul tells us that I don't do what I know I'm not supposed to do and I do what I know I'm not supposed to do and I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do. We struggle with our hearts, don't we? Amen? Yes. So we need to give our hearts to God every single day. We need to tell God what his word tells us already is our heart is deceptive. Who can understand it? I can't understand my heart, God. So can you do something with this thing? Because I confess that I can't. You need to do something. You know, to even see God or understand God, he has to do something. He has to regenerate our hearts. He has to illuminate and renew our minds. We cannot even accept Christ if he doesn't do that. And it's even impossible to accept Christ and, and also follow him uh, with a divided heart. And even when he does, we still have two problems. We still have that choice between life and death. We're in the presence of sin, which is one problem, and we still have that choice to choose life or death. Even the regenerated heart can wander. But it's not always out of ignorance. We can't claim that we don't know the law. God's given us his law. He's given us his grace and his mercy too. 
And he's even given that, I think, to our enemy in some ways. So God has to do something. In Ezekiel 36, it, it paints this picture. It's a picture of God. He's sick and tired of the behavior of his children, his chosen people. He's sick and tired of their obedience. He's sick and tired of their defiance and them running away from him. He's sick and tired of them whoring around with false idols. And so he says, you shall be clean from your uncleannesses. It's plural. They're doing all kinds of stuff. But he's not saying, you will clean your room, you will get your act together, because if I have to stop this car, he's not saying that, because he goes on to say, you, you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, for all of your, from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you, your, uh, from your flesh, and give you, the, you a heart of flesh. What he means is that he designed us with a heart of flesh for a particular purpose, to know him and to make him known, to worship him, to live according to our design, not our own choices. He's saying that your heart of flesh has turned to stone in hardness of your sin, but I need to do something, and I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. Verse 3 really points to us that we have an enemy. Our true enemy and Jesus' enemy is Satan. And he capitalizes on our sin desires, our weaknesses. But it's not always in big flamboyant ways. It is sometimes, but usually it's in the little mundane moments of our day and those thoughts, those little tiny temptations, those little tiny things that uh, we choose our way in. And one little portion of sin at a time, one on top of another, it's like leaven and the sinful heart rises, gets puffed up. And it may even happen like it says here through the pressures and encouragement of a group. But it's always a matter of the individual's heart and their response. It is the sin in our hearts that makes it deceptive. And sin deceives us and it even deceives Satan. Armed with the truth from, straight from the mouth of God. We have his truth, but we still choose death sometimes, don't we? Satan knew God's word. He was tempting Jesus and the devil, and how did he do that? He, he quoted scripture. So he himself is, is deceived, and <clears throat> we, like him, say, oh, my way is certainly the better way here. Oh, I know God's truth, but this is what I want. I know the way I want to live my life. Consequences? I determine my own destiny. Good luck with that. Choose death sometimes. Now, I want to be careful here. Actually, I don't. <laughs> but we need to hear some things. And the thing is that I wanted to point out, it's, it might be hard to swallow, but we are, when we're blinded in our sin, we are more like Satan than we are like God. How is that? Well, Satan is not all-knowing, all but he thinks he is. He's not all-powerful, but... He thinks he is. He's not all loving or wise or completely in control, but he thinks he is, and so do we sometimes, but we're not. And so in that, we're more like Satan, blinded by sin, than we are like God, who has a better way for us. In our deception, <clears throat> we don't get our way, and so <clears throat> we try and kick God off his throne, and we don't really do that because he can't be kicked off his throne. We just set up our own little tiny thrones next to him and go, I'm going to rule my own little kingdom right here. 
But we can't do that. Or here's another thing we do. We don't get our way, and we run away from God, but then we say he has abandoned us. But he doesn't. He pursues us. Jesus came down here. God is called, he's called the hound of heaven. He tracks us down in our sinfulness. It's not a hard trail to follow, by the way. We pick our punishment, but defiance isn't only out of ignorance. Sometimes it's out of arrogance. And so I want to look at two Proverbs. Both of them kind of start the same. They're both in chapter 16 of Proverbs. One is 25 and one is 9. First, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, the way is the way to death. So the point is, is that death follows defiance. And this happens when we want to do it our way. I can eat whatever what I want, ever, whatever I want. I can drink whatever I want. I can watch whatever I want, say whatever I want, hang out with whoever I want, do whatever I want. But what's that going to bring? It's going to bring death. How about marriage? Two people in it for themselves. What's in it for me? I want it my way. No, I want it my way. No, I want it my way. No, I want it my way. Did that happen on the way to church today sometimes, maybe? In the end, it leads to death. However we do that, it's going to lead to some kind of death, the death of our job, the death of our health, maybe our physical death, the death of our marriage. But when our, death, when our ship is going down, the song's going to be playing, I did it my way. It's death, and it's our choice. But verse 16.9 uh, says, says it this way, the, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Redirection follows ignorance and immaturity. And so God, he does do something. He is long-suffering with us. And God always leads his redirection and always leads his uh, correction with a measure of grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor, right? So he will lead us and he will guide us. But in turn, we must follow He's not following us. We're following him. And so we'll either learn the easy way or the hard way. We must choose life or death. And choosing life requires repentance. And by the way, God gives that to us too. Because in our sinfulness, we don't choose to repent. Why did Luther say all of life is repentance? It's because we're in constant need of a savior. We're in constant need of repenting not only from our badness, but of our goodness that puffs us up. Why are his mercies new every morning? Because I need them every morning. I need them every morning, noon, and night. I love using the acronym for sin, S-I-N, as self-indulgent nature. Because sin, that's how we indulge ourselves, and it distorts our... Our, our, our perception of what is true and what's right. Even Satan knows that the betray, this betrayal would lead to his own end, but his hate gets the best of him. His sin gets the best of him. Thinking that spilling every drop of blood of Jesus would be his victory, it's actually his doom and our glory. He hates us. Why would he do that for us? And what leads him and us to destruction in big ways and in small ways, it's what's in it for me. 
Do you remember what we talked about, about uh, sacred celebrations, uh, empty of God's glory, leading to the full, fullness of man's vanity? Do you remember that? Well, it doesn't just happen at parties. It happens in everyday life. It even happens in ministry. Uh, number four, our point is uh, from Paul Tripp. It's actually from his New Morning Mercies uh, devotional. I encourage you to get it. It's awesome. But it says that the kingdom of self is very skilled at wearing the clothing of the kingdom of God. Here's what it looks like. A focus on material things can masquerade as good stewardship of your possessions. Now, before I say what I'm going to say, I want you to realize it says it can. Suppose you got season tickets. God blessed me with season tickets. Oh, God, you are so good, right? So I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to be a good steward because I'm not going to miss any games, even on Sundays. I'm going to sacrifice getting together with God's people, worshiping and hearing his word and being grown up because I'm going to be a good steward. I'm being sacrificed. Do you see how that's a masquerade? Now, there's probably season ticket holders that go to Desert Breeze, but they won't be offended because they're not here today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So here's, here's another part of the list is loving and demanding personal control can masquerade as using God-given leadership gifts. Unrighteous anger can masquerade as I just value what's right. Building your own ministry empire can masquerade as a commitment to the expansion of God's kingdom when it's really about your little kingdom. Fear of being abandoned can masquerade as a sensitivity towards meeting the needs of others. Selfish attention seeking can masquerade as being honest about your needs. Judgment and criticism can masquerade as a commitment to speaking the truth. A craving to be known and respected can masquerade as your commitment to ministry. Lust can masquerade as a celebration of the beauty of God's creation. That is a super slippery one. And gossip can masquerade as a prayerful concern for others. Ouch. Do you see how it can happen? Do you see how it's a masquerade? Do you see how the list can go on and on and on and on and the kingdom of self is truly a costume kingdom? We need to be good at asking God, God, what is my masquerade? Point it out to me because I have blind spots. And we also need to allow the people around us to be used by God to maybe point those things out to us and that we can, should consider it. God gives us warning in his word of, of how we're supposed to internalize the gospel. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 gives us this warning. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It's talking about the gospel, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution, how shall we escape if we ne neglect such a great salvation? Are you paying close attention to the gospel? Pay closer attention. Are you paying attention to how it affects you how, you, how it makes you live your life and do relationships and what you say, what you do, what you think, what you allow in your mind and your body? 
It's not what the Bible says, it's what it does in you. That's how we're supposed to cl pay much closer attention. The gospel is supposed to make God look big and us look small. And there's a story that I've told up here once before, but I'll tell it again. It's R.C. Sproul, and he's talking to this lady that's really troubled about maybe continuing to go to church. And he's like, well, why, why is that? And she said, well, I know God's gifted you very much at being a good teacher, and I appreciate that. You're a very talented teacher. I love listening to you. But I'm so convicted. It just makes me feel bad. And every time I walk out of this church, I feel about that big. And his response, that's too big. The gospel is supposed to make us, or God look big and us look small. And it's the old and the new Passover. Both give us a picture of how big and powerful and loving and grace-filled and merciful our God is. And he's got big plans for us, for our redemption, which is the gospel. And Luke 22 shows us four ways of how the gospel tells us why Jesus died. Number five. A few fill-ins here. The death of Jesus answers the mystery of why the lamb. The death of Jesus marks the center of history. The death of Jesus lays the foundation of his radical, new, different model of community. And the death of Jesus is appropriated personally. I'll give you a second to fill those in. Now, before I go into these four points, I want to describe the Passover to you. It originated, as it's told, in Exodus chapter 12, and there's much, much more detail that I have time to go into there. But for the most part, Moses was God's representative to command Pharaoh to free his people for, from 400 years of slavery and, and uh, oppression. And he does it over and over and over again, several times, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he denied him, and he said no several times. No, no, no. And so God tells, told Moses to announce that God is sending the destroyer in judgment over all of Egypt. And God gives uh, very special instructions, specific instructions to Moses and the people of Israel to select a lamb without blemish. The perfect lamb, not just any lamb, your most prized lamb, your most precious lamb. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It was a precious little relational lamb that these families had. But that lamb, the Passover lamb, as it says in our verse 7 in Luke here, had to be sacrificed. It had to be killed. And the blood of that lamb, and by the way, there was no other option couldn't have chicken or a salad or pick a goat that was about to die already or something like that. The lamb had to be sacrificed and its blood was to mark the doorposts, both sides, and the lentil, which is the top of the door. And then there was to be a feast. There was supposed to be a feast with that lamb for the main course, the Passover meal. And the entire lamb, the innards, the legs, and everything, all of it was to be eaten. And any part that was to be left, was left over was to be burned. It was to be destroyed. Well, why the unleavened bread? God's instruction was to eat the Passover meal in haste. In fact, it says, eat the, the meal in haste with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Why? 
because they were going to be freed right away and they were going to be leaving in haste and this leavened bread didn't need to rise so it was a quick meal. And there was going to be affliction and so it was called the bread of affliction. And God commanded that the first Passover be memorialized in generations forever. Every generation was to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in future Passover observances, the children would ask, what do you mean by this service? What's up with the lamb? What's up with the unleavened bread? And they will tell them, and they would probably use the book of Exodus to explain it to them. And they would say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of, of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So each year the father would gather the family together and write down to the children asking that question, they would memorialize the day that God's power and mercy was theirs, freeing them from the bondage from bondage and giving them the blood of the lamb that allowed judgment to pass over them. And so consistent with how Christ is received, the Passover sacrifice is not how we please God ceremonially what we do, but it symbolizes his sacrifice to you, what he has done. It's God's way and his instruction that's critical in the Passover. And in the Passover is to come for the Jew to disregard the order or the elements of the Passover, that would get you cast out of the community of God's people. And on that first Passover, it was critical. It was a matter of life and death because being outside of the house covered by the blood of the lamb for Egyptian or Jew, if you were outside, under, out from the covering of the blood, the destroyer was coming for you. But you choose. So the message here is that you won't be saved by being Jewish or acting religious or good, being covered by what God chooses, by the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice. That is your only hope. And that's the story of the Passover. So one thing that the mystery of the Passover points out uh, <clears throat> points uh, is the perspective of the magnitude of sin and its injustice and what is required to forgive it. And the lamb thing, it's a bit offensive to us, right? You're going to kill Mary's little lamb? You probably thought about it. It kind of offends our sensibilities, right? Why in the world would the death of a furry little, furry little lamb satisfy God's justice? Of all people, or of all animals chosen to show how God saves, why the lamb? Because what did he ever do? Right? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't he? Why not one of those snotty old bulls? Hamburger, right? That's not so bad. But a furry little lamb with big eyes, crushed and killed? It's kind of awkward and we laugh nervously, but to kill such a perfect and seemingly helpless little thing, it's gut-wrenching. It tears at your heart. And not just once, but every single year. And not just every single year. It had to be done at your own hand. You couldn't call the butcher and say, hey, do the dirty work and bring it to me. No, it had to be done at your own hand. But this is according to God's will. It's an act of your obedience, but it's hard. It's hard on your heart. But really, when we look back, it has no eternal effect, does it? We know just by reading the Bible that our faith, as hard as uh, our faithfulness, as hard as we try and as hard as we try to be obedient, 
we fail and our complacency grows and the blood of generations of Passover lambs are not enough to pay the debt that we owe God. So there must be another way to be passed over. And here it is in Luke. This particular Passover shows us that it's God's will to provide the perfect and final sacrificial lamb without blemish. When you think of Jesus, perfect, what did he ever do? Well, he came down here, meek and mild, innocent, but chosen to die at the hand of his debtors. He would give all of himself and not just part. And it would be his blood that holds the redeeming power that pays all of it, once and for all, not for just the Jews, but for the Greeks and the Jews and the Gentiles, male, female, it doesn't matter. He did it for everybody, for the entirety of God's creation. The death of Jesus answers the mystery of why the lamb. So how does the death of Jesus mark the, his, the center of history? And how does it usher in this new and different community? Well, after generations of Passovers that symbolized a true lamb would come, he did come, and it changed everything. Here, history is changing from the old covenant to the new covenant, and the death of Jesus is at the center of it. Now, Jesus is leading the Passover here when it's usually done by a family member, and so it's different. The disciples were kind of probably kind of scratching their heads like, Jesus asked them, uh, go prepare the fat Passover feast. And I, I, I'm assuming here, taking a little license, that they might have been thinking, well, we sort of had plans. We we're going to go be with our family like we have for every Passover. Mom's expecting us, right? And we're supposed to do it at their house. But he gives them some random thing to go find a guy with a jar and to go in the upper room and prepare it there. And where's my family? So it must have been really odd to them. And even the feast was different because there was the wine and the unleavened bread, but where's the main course? Where's the lamb? Jesus was supposed to bring the lamb. Jesus, why is there no lamb at the table, on the table? It's because the lamb of God was at the table. And you'll notice that this is all about his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Notice when he speaks of the affliction and the sacrifice, he's not looking back saying their affliction, their sacrifice, the Israelites. He's looking forward to what he would do. He says, my suffering, my blood, my body. It is a new covenant in my blood. And when he uses this word covenant, that word actually means a binding and intimate relationship. And the old Passover calls us to look back at the Israelites' covenant with relationship with God. And this new Passover is all about everybody. It's for, like I said, Greek, Jew, Gentiles, everybody. Why? Because he's to redeem all of creation. The blood is no longer symbolic of what is to come. It has come. The blood of the little lambs didn't pay sin or any pay for sin or anything. They all pointed to Christ. Jesus was saying, God chose this lamb. I'm right here. Jesus facilitates a new covenant relationship for us with God. God gave his one and only son so we could be called sons and daughters of God, and that's what we are. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. 
But even still, for many people, still look at the cross and think how hard that is. Why, why was that necessary? I know God is a forgiving God, but why all the blood and gore? Why doesn't he just say, I forgive you? Well, God can't certainly do that, and we can't either. If you think about really, really being hurt by someone, really being wronged, really having something taken from you unjustly, you can't just say, I forgive you. Let me give you some examples. There's three, three ways, three, only three things that can be done. Let's say someone drives up on your lawn and their, their Cadillac Escalade and, and wipes out your mailbox, kind of skids sideways. What did you do? That's my mailbox. I put that up and we put the house in and I dug that little hole by myself and poured the concrete and put the post and the three, three screws in it. It, cost, it was 45 minutes I spent of my life doing that. And they're like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll pay for it. I'll get it fixed. Skid marks on the lawn. So the next day, the workers, the landscapers show up and they fix your lawn and they plant these beautiful flowers and in the middle, there's this tower of bricks with a light on it and a post uh, a mailbox inside, and you go, wow, that is awesome. That's better than my little post. Took all day. Look at look what you've done for me. Thank you so much. And so they suffered the payment to satisfy you, and all is forgiven. All is good in mailbox world, right? Well, let's use a different example, something more severe. Let's say a drunk driver screams down the road and T-bones a, a minivan, and a wife and three kids are just gone like that. Well, the transgressor will probably be arrested, go to prison, and suffer payment. Three life sentences. Maybe they even get the death penalty. But you're not satisfied. Why? Because the payment's not perfect. You didn't get your wife and three kids back. And so you suffer the inadequacy of that payment, and there's a good chance that evil will win. Why? Because a portion of the injustice remains and you become bitter. You become the evil that's been done to you. And in your bitterness, you become cold and hard and you suffer through it. And you allow the destruction to continue in you and, and all the relationships around you because you're so bitter, they start dying. And so suffering and sacrifice continues and evil wins. There's only one other thing that you can really do. And here it is. And it's hard. It's that you suffer forgiveness. Let me explain. Real forgiveness only happens when you actually forgive them like this. You can't just say, I forgive you. You've lost your wife and three kids, and you can't just say the three magic words and click your heels together and all will be well. It doesn't work like that. No, because words are not the currency of true forgiveness. No, suffering and sacrifice, that's the true currency of forgiveness. Refraining from payment means you must suffer the loss, not them. When you want to see them pay and be destroyed, but instead you forgive and you restrain from hurting them, even in your mind and you take on the hurt yourself, you sacrifice and you suffer the loss. That is hard. And so what is true forgiveness? It's in your growing notes, but it's also up on the screen. To restore the loss of what is good in a way that does not allow evil to win and provides complete satisfaction, not only for the loss, but for those who have suffered the loss, true forgiveness must include the death of what is evil, the restoration of life and goodness through a sacrifice greater than that evil. And we see it on the cross. 
Let me explain. My example would be the preeminent, the original transgression. The fall cost, caused our loss of relationship with God in a very particular way. So that's the loss of what is good. And a human remedy is not good enough to give perfect payment to an almighty God. So what is needed? First, atonement is needed. What is atonement? That is a satisfactory payment. That is payment in full. And we also need, along with atonement, propitiation. And propitiation is the satisfaction of the one that we owe the debt to. And Jesus accomplished both of those things on the cross. Why? Because his death satisfied God's standard of justice. And also his payment satisfied the God of justice. So you say that evil, or that there must be the death of what is evil. Well, Jesus was good, right? Well, God's word says that he became sin for us. So Jesus, for us, became our own evil. He took our place. And so then there was the restoration of life and goodness because the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the resurrection of Christ not only restores us to eternal life, and it restores us in right relationship with God. How does it do that? Because the perfect sacrifice of Christ and the power of his blood is greater than all evil, than every evil. And that's how true forgiveness happens. And it's the gospel. And we've seen it modeled throughout time, even in the garden. What happened in the garden? I keep going back to it, but Adam and Eve, they chose to eat the truth. They chose death, right? That was the penalty. But they didn't die, did they? Christ, God again, leads with grace. He doesn't kill them. A consequence of them eating of the tree was that they knew their, their sinfulness. And so they had sinfulness and they knew their evil. But what did God do? He covered their shame. How did he cover their shame? He put skins of animals on them. And so why is that significant? Because that requires the shedding of blood. That requires sacrifice. And it's consistent. When God asks us to suffer and sacrifice and forgiveness, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done on an infinitely greater degree himself over and over and over again. And the consistency is in the garden, God destroyed part of his beautiful creation to cover our shame, cover their shame. He suffered the loss and the sacrifice of his wrath and the loss and sacrifice of his beautiful creation, something in it. Just as the Jews were to destroy the lamb without blemish to cover themselves and be passed over, suffering the sacrifice in the process. Just as God destroyed his one and only son, providing the blood of Jesus to once and for all cover our sin debt, blood was shed. He is the perfect and final sacrifice, killed at the hand of his, uh, those that he was sacrificing for, with Christ, there is never forgiveness, suffering, nails, thorns, sweat, and blood. Never. And so when you know him and what he did for you and you receive his gift, it leaves no mystery. And so how does Jesus' death redefine God's new covenant people in his community? In a nutshell, it's dying to ourselves. In verse 24, it starts out telling us by there's a dispute among them and who's going to be regarded as the greatest. 
And Jesus said to them that the kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them. And, and those authorities are called benefactor. You see, this, he was pointing out that this dispute is rooted in the old patronage system. It's the way the world does it. I'm the greatest, I'm the oldest. In that culture, the younger served the older. They weren't, they weren't great, the oldest was great. And so it's, it's along with what uh, you see in our world today. Look at me, I'm the greatest. I will be first. Self-sovereigns grappling for lordship. But Jesus won't have it. He says, but not so for you. Let the greatest become as the youngest. The leaders serve. And then he says, look at me. He says, but I am among the ones, I am as the one who serves. I think he's gently telling them, aren't I the great one here? You knuckleheads. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. I'm serving. You serve. That's the standard of new, of new covenant community. But it's natural in our flesh to, to look to other people and things for our, our significance and power and wholeness. You see it all around you. But I think if you look close, you'll see it in you as well. It might be a blind spot. You might need someone to point it out to you, but it's there. It's this emptiness and sadness that says, I don't have what I need to satisfy me, so I'll look for, to someone else or something else to find wholeness. But the problem is that we look to fallen people, just like us. We look to created, the created things instead of the creator. Jesus is saying, look to me. He's saying, I'm right here. I'm your true benefactor. You're not gonna find true benefit, true satisfaction in anything else or anyone else but me. I'm right here. But he's also saying, don't look for benefactors. He's saying, be a benefactor. He's saying, when you're satisfied in me, you will then be a benefactor by sharing me with others, not only in word, but in deed. All to God's glory, not to your own. And when this happens, you changed, and you changed the world around you. That's intimidating, isn't it? Because I don't have what it takes, neither do you. But point number six in verse 32, it shows us that the community of Christ is not full of perfect people. It is full of repentant people who are being perfected. On this side of eternity, we'll never be perfect. And we're all like Peter in many ways. That is why the death of Jesus can be appropriated personally. To be appropriated means to seize it for yourself. <clears throat> He's kind of calling out Simon Peter here. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, this is different than what happened with Judas. This is translated better to say, Satan asked to have you because Jesus is the authority here. It says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, this is talking about repentance Peter looked away, he faltered, he looked away from Jesus, he did what Jesus, exactly what Jesus said he would do. And he warmed himself by the fire, and I think as he gazed across and met Jesus eye to eye and realized what he was about to do for him, he repented, he turned back to Jesus. And Jesus says, then strengthen your brothers. But Peter still doesn't get it. Peter, 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 Peter. Lord, I, Lord, I am ready to go to prison and to death. <coughs> he says, I tell you, Peter, pretty much what he's saying is, by the end of the day, 
you're going to deny that you know me three times. So what does Jesus give us so our faith won't fail? He wasn't saying he was praying so Satan won't win. Satan can't win. He's saying so that our faith won't fail. What does he give us? He gives us himself. He gives us his power. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his strength. He gives us his guidance through the Holy Spirit. We are his possession. We're possessed by Christ. (coughs) And Satan won't win. And when we're in him and he is in us, our faith will never fail. He meets us where we're at, and he calls us to repentance. And from there, we're changed. We're not perfect, but when we repent and he uses us, we can, we can encourage the brothers and strengthen the brothers. Instead, he prays for us. It's remarkable. He doesn't, he doesn't strengthen us to, to just for us. Or, or he, he uses us for the re, for, to redeem the lives of other people as a testimony to his goodness in us to strengthen others. And it goes on and on and on and on. So the point is, for the believer, number seven, for the believer, why the wisdom of God may let us falter, even when we choose death, he'll teach us a lesson. Or if we're ignorant, he'll teach us a lesson. And then he'll grant us repentance. So through granted repentance, Jesus' prayers will redeem us and others to the glory of God. There's no other love that you're going to find like that. No other love. And in verse 15, when he says, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you, he's saying, I desire with desire to do this with you. He wants to join them for eternity. He wants to join them in celebrating the Passover. It's with double intensity. He says, you have no idea how much my heart is bursting for love with you but you will when you find out the meaning of my death and you will when you finally understand why I did go to the cross for you. So experiencing his love, appropriating it, seizing it for ourselves, it's the solution to how the cross turns you into a person who is created and engages in this radical new community. It quenches what's in it for me and it makes you a world changer. Why? Because then you believe what he actually says next. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. What an incredible price he's paid for us to be able to do that. <coughs> Excuse me. Something that stirred me um, quite a bit is verse 19. Very subtle truths. Verse 19, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I read it quick and kind of insignificantly without emotion like that, because sometimes that's how we hear it. We go through communion, and we're like, yeah, hurry up. And we hear those verses. That's why I asked at the beginning, do you ever get tired of hearing the gospel? That's the gospel. How many times do we do that? Yeah, Jesus died for me. Yeah, he paid for my sins. I hope that you can see in this verse what I see in our Savior. First, there's three things. He gently tells us to remember the, do this and remember some for me. Why? Because sinners, even sinners saved by grace, are in constant need of a Savior and are in constant need of a reminder of what ought to be unforgettable. So he reminds us. 
Next is he broke the bread. His life was not taken from him. It was given to us. And third is that he gave thanks, as if to say, thank you, Father, for a body and blood that I can give to be broken and poured out all at once for all these who are broken by sin. Cover them with my blood and pass over them. Pass over them for your glory and their good. Man, what a great weekend this would have been for communion, right? But it didn't work out that way, so I have a challenge for you. I want to encourage you in this. When you celebrate Thanksgiving this week, I want you to think about these things. I want you to read these verses to your family. I want you to, to, you don't have to have lamb, but I want you to, to understand and share with your family what the Passover is all about and enjoy and celebrate being passed over in Jesus Christ because of his suffering and his sacrifice. And you know what? You don't have to do it in haste because you're already free in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, by all means, go in haste to him. Run to him. He loves you. He did this for you too. <coughs> and if you've fallen, turn back. Repent. He loves you. He has everything in the world for you. Let's pray. Lord, if not for your omnipotence, none of us would even exist. And if not for your new mercies every morning, none of us could withstand the evils in us and around us as we walk through this life that you have given us. And if not for your omniscience and omnipresence, we would not have the truth that you have given us in your word or the spirit that you have left us with to guide us and lead us out of the darkness that we were in. So, we understand that without your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we are without hope. We are without hope for, because of what he has done, if he didn't do what he was going to do on the cross. And so we thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you have done for us, and what you are doing in us to make, to make us like Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Have an incredible Thanksgiving. God bless you.